You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, it's our Thanksgiving special, and we've got the entire menu covered. Dan Pashman has a strategy for sides. To me, the mashed potatoes are the structural backbone of the Thanksgiving plate. For dessert, we're unearthing the secret history of pie, featuring Hollywood self-proclaimed pie king. Because he ate so much pie, he said, I have a good complexion and marvelous digestion. And as for turkey, we'll hear how one wild bird threw an entire city into chaos. It's very unclear what made him snap, but he definitely snapped. All of that is coming up later in the show. But first, I'm joined by Jed Tila. Jed and I had such a great time taking your calls last year that we invited him back. Jed Tila is a chef, cookbook author, and Food Network personality. His latest book is 101 Thai Dishes You Need to Cook Before You Die. Hey, Jed, thanks for joining us uh, once again for Thanksgiving on Milk Street. Hey, Chris, always an honor. Thanks so much for having me. You know, every year for at least 20 years, I've made a different turkey recipe. (laughs) Start high and low, start low and high, braise it, deep fry it, barbecue it, you know, turned it three times, said the Lord's Prayer, stood (laughs) in my head, played a couple Grateful Dead tunes, came back to the kitchen. So I think I've probably cooked a turkey almost every possible way. Because you've cooked so many birds, though, if someone's more on the novice side, is one more bulletproof than the other technique? Yeah, the best way, I think, is to braise, which means I take the dark meat and put that in the big roasting pan with you know all sorts of sofrito and, and mm-hmm. stock, et cetera. Tons of leeks. Leeks are great in gravy. Yeah. Then I put the uh, breasts on top. So the breasts get cooked first, I take them out and because the dark meat, you know, this 165 to 170 does not work with dark meat. You want to cook Mm-mm. the heck out of those because there's nothing worse than a gnarly, stringy leg. <laughs> so I think separating the breast from the uh, dark meat. So the dark meat gets braised a long time. The white meat comes off first. So that's the I safest way. Then I strain the liquid and reduce it down to make gravy and, and the flavor of that gravy because it's got the meat cooked in it, the vegetables, the leeks, et cetera. It's great. All right. So, what time am I coming over? And uh, anytime, and man, you I'll can. Be there. And you don't have to bring anything either. All so. right. Okay. Let's take a call. All right, man. Let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is uh, Primus from Wilmington, Delaware. How are you? I'm doing very well. Good. How can we help you? Every year, I um, host a Thanksgiving dinner for our family and friends, twenty-five to thirty people. So, we make three turkeys, and one tofurkey. I've heard about this method that I've been using for several years called high heat method. So I've been turning the oven uh, onto sometimes 450 or 500 degrees. I just want you to know I'm getting nervous now, so go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I put the turkey in a regular um, basting pot with a rack in it, And I put about two inches of water, and so the water's almost touching the bird in the rack. And I put it in for like 45 minutes, and then I just do temperature checks. It works out perfectly. The bird comes out really, really well. Wait, 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 wait. Um, It it cooks in 45 minutes? 
It cooks in 45 minutes. No. How big is the bird? It's above 15. Usually it's about 18. What? Wait, and you haven't spatchcocked it. You're saying a whole bird cooks in 45 minutes? The whole bird cooks in 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I heard about this method, and I just can't find any like reference to it on the internet or anything else. This sounds like something out of quantum mechanics or something where yeah. time and temperature are affected by gravity or something. I don't know. I, that doesn't – you just blew my mind. I can't imagine it would be done – really? I know. I, I can yeah. see if you're reheating a ham. That might work. But you have a raw turkey. Is it brined? Is it a brined turkey? Nope. Nope. Just a regular turkey. It's unfrozen. No stuffing or anything in it. Yeah. Rest up. But it's not tented at all. It's a convection oven too, so there's you know there's a fan going. On yeah, the but that's not gonna. Yeah, but forty five minutes. Forty five doesn't turn forty five minutes into two hours. I'm never speechless, but I'm close. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't think there have been two dudes that have cooked more turkeys than Chris and I together. And I mean, even if you spatch a bird or cut it in half or butterflied it, I can't see the center of the breast or the deepest part of the thigh cooking through all the way, man. So look, uh, I've never done it. I don't know scientifically how it can be done. I think you've jumped into uh, the future. This is like an episode of the Twilight Zone, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> exactly. I know. I've been doing it for probably the last five or six years. I do like a regular chicken in a 425 oven spatchcocked, and it takes yep. close to an hour to get done. You're talking about a you know 14-pound bird three times bigger. You sure you're not using a pizza oven or something? <laughs> I use an instant read thermometer to check it. I've never gone over an hour. You got me stumped. I'm going to actually ask the kitchen to try this because... You got us. You've you got, win. Man, you got us. <laughs> We're going to test this and call you back. How about that? There you I go. I appreciate yeah. that. Follow up. That'd be great. All right. Yeah. Thanks for calling. All right, man. Yeah. Be well. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who is calling? This is Shelly from Birmingham, Alabama. How can we help you today? Every year we smoke a turkey for Thanksgiving and I make kind of plain gravy, but it doesn't really do much to complement the smoked turkey. I also make cranberry sauce, which goes well with it. But, you know, for Thanksgiving, you just kind of want the gravy. So what would you do to complement the smoked turkey? You could go back to mastering the art of French cooking and do a quick, you know, pan sauce, white wine based, mount some butter in it, use sage, rosemary. Okay. Strong herbs will go really well with smoked turkey. And you can do that in 10 minutes on top of the stove, you know, little stock, little white wine. And that's what I would do and just make it quick and simple. Jet? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Shelly. Um, I'm probably the biggest gravy snob that I know anyway. So here's, here's a few tips for you, right? For making fantastic gravy. And one is it's really roasting the matter, right? And sometimes that can be, I buy like a few pounds of chicken wings, I'll split them. And if you're running the smoker a few weeks before anyway, that's when I want you to smoke either uh, chicken bones, chicken, if you can, I usually grab a cheap, like a 10 pounder that's usually on sale of a turkey. I'll cut it into bits, but here's the important part. We got to get mirepoix. So you got to get celery, carrots, and onions. You got to mix it into that, those turkey or chicken pieces, and you got to brown them. That's the only way you're going to get the most out of gravy. So you're either going to smoke them, or I like to roast them at about 450, 475 degrees until they are charred, not burnt, but very, very charred. 
and then I make my stock out of that. Add some herbs to that, reduce it a bit. And again, I make all this ahead of time or separately because I know if you're smoking regularly, I would smoke a couple of either legs, smoke some you know, carcass, smoke some uh, wings, and then make stock of all that because that's when you need to bump up that intense flavor that you're getting from the bird. I put a little bit of cream in my gravy, and then I also add uh, just a little bit of soy sauce. And those are all little flavor bumps that are going to help really match that gravy to your outstanding turkey. There's also, oh, I know, um, matcha, you know, the salsa? yeah. Salsa matcha from Mexico, which is nuts and chilies and stuff. That would be Mm -hmm. ideal for smoked turkey. It only takes 10 minutes. You just throw it together in a food processor, essentially. Man. Cook it a little bit. But salsa matcha is phenomenal. I can just eat it out of a bowl. And it would definitely go with smoked turkey. So try that. Chris, you're getting my brain okay. going because now I want to go to mole. Anyway, that's a whole other yeah, thing. Yeah, mole Moles with smoked turkey sounds really good too. Hopefully that helps, Shelly. Only 23 ingredients and takes five hours. But <laughs> you buy it. Good. You buy it. You find a good recipe. You buy yeah, it. You buy that one. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen this holiday season, give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Amy and I live in Michigan. So how can we help you with Thanksgiving? I have a problem with side dishes, especially healthy or what I would call the non-potato-based side dishes. Once I'm done with turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing, I just can't figure out what to make that's not a potato. I tried making salad one year, but it was so unmemorable that I left it in the fridge and didn't notice it till I was putting away leftovers. So I'm looking for some things that are easy to make, probably stovetop, can sit or be served at room temperature and are more memorable that I'm not going to leave it in the fridge and forget about it the entire meal. Okay, three things. Kale. We sort of massage the kale, which sounds weird, but it works with smoked almonds, and that's really good. I think charring vegetables in a cast iron skillet, like broccoli, or charred Brussels sprouts are great. You can char them on top of the stove and do a quick whatever dressing you like. Those would be three ideas for me, Jet. Hey, Amy. I'm so carved out by the middle of Thanksgiving that... I need roughage and I need fiber to balance me out. I'm a practical cook and I don't want people to go out and get crazy things, but I tend to look at the things we already have. So um, usually where's Brussels? Instead of roasting them or, you know, cooking the life out of them, I do a shaved Mm, Brussels sprouts and you shave them really thin. You can use a machine to do that. A little bit of cheese, cracked almonds, and just make a really light vinaigrette. We can make one up right now. Champagne vinegar a little bit of olive oil, maybe a splash of balsamic. So things that are bright, but using some of the greens. Another thing is, uh, like Chris said, roasted vegetables is such an opportunity. And yes, I'm trying to get out of carby. So, you know, I do think about kale. I think about going back to broccoli because, you know, the oven's always tied up. Your kitchen's pretty, you know, destroyed. I do a very quick stir fry. 
I mean, the items that we already talked about, like cauliflower, celery, carrots. And one ingredient that every kitchen needs is oyster sauce. If, and if you don't want to do the Asian thing, you can just do simple salt, pepper, olive oil, and then do a little bit of drizzle of like a balsamic or something that's a little sweet. So those are some of the ideas that are non-carby. For the ones besides stir-fry, do you dress that with a dressing at the same time, or do you wait till right before you serve it? Yeah, so for Brussels, because they're so durable, I would dress it ahead of time, so it's one less thing you need to worry about. Another thing you can do, too, is put the dressing in the bottom of the bowl, put all of the ingredients, layer it. I do my Brussels, my cheese, some herbs, some nuts. Because of the dressings on the bottom, the acid's not going to permeate. So once you get to the table, you could do a very quick toss. It's a little chefy. You can kind of, you know, <laughs> get that chefy moment in. I like to load things in the bowl, and then right when I serve them, I bring them together. One tip is most people overdress their salads. So mm. use half as much dressing as you think you need and toss it for a minute. I mean, not like 10 seconds, because it takes a while to coat everything with a dressing, and you'll find out the more you toss it, the less you need. So you can always add more later. But once you've overdressed something, it's <laughs> it's a bridge too far. You can't get back. And Chris nailed it. And then the last tip for vegetables is season your vegetables. Yeah. Dressing is a flavoring, but salt and pepper bring out right. the flavor of the actual greens. Got it. These are great. This is going to save me from forgotten salad or green bean casserole. You know, these are terrific. Amy, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, It's been an honor. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman constructs the ultimate Thanksgiving plate. That's coming right up. But first, let me tell you about this week's sponsor, Crunch Labs. Crunch Labs offers a STEM monthly subscription. It's a build box for kids, which they put together by watching a video of a former NASA engineer turned YouTuber, Mark Rober. Crunch Labs teaches kids to think like engineers, and 80% of kids who tried the build box say they gained a new passion around STEM and engineering while rating it an 8.5 out of 10 on the fun scale. The first 12 build boxes include a disc launcher, a coin spinner, a drawing machine, a strobe light, and a boomerang car. Each month, subscribers get a gear badge, collect all 12, and you'll create a gear train to show off your accomplishments. Plus, one lucky engineer will open their box to find a platinum ticket, which is an invitation to the studio to hang out with Mark and friends in their Willy Wonka-style studio. Go to crunchlabs.com milkstreet and get your kids Crunch Labs today. One more time, crunchlabs.com slash milkstreet to get your kids Crunch Labs today. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. 
And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. We're continuing our celebration of Thanksgiving with some culinary inspiration from Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm getting ready for the big day, Chris. Thanksgiving's coming. You got to have a strategy. So what is the obstacle you're trying to overcome in Thanksgiving? What's the strategy all about? Well, I mean, look, in most Thanksgiving tables, there's a lot of different foods on offer. 
And I think that sometimes people, they just sort of go down the buffet or they start scooping willy-nilly and they're not thinking about how they're putting the foods on their plate and how they're composing bites and bringing the food to their mouths. I'm ready. I'm ready. So the first thing is mashed potatoes. I love mashed potatoes, but they're also incredibly effective as a mortar to hold together different types of foods on the same bite. They're also very good at creating seals and walls on your plate to prevent gravy or other sauces from intermixing in ways that you don't want them to intermix. (laughs) To me, the mashed potatoes are the structural backbone of the Thanksgiving plate. I have to admit I've never thought of it that way. (laughs) This is like the DMZ between North and South Korea. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You know, look, uh, good, good fences make good neighbors. Here's my problem. I realize every Thanksgiving, the only things I really want to eat are turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, cranberry sauce. Stuffing depends if someone's doing really something nutso with a stuffing this year. But those are the four things because they they go together, right? Right. The, The problem is how do you integrate the roasted broccoli? How do you integrate the salad? It seems difficult once you get beyond those four things. It's a very valid concern, Chris, and I want you to know that I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> now, you. I, I think that people get very hung up on like, okay, I have an empty plate and I'm going to fill it for the first time at this Thanksgiving dinner and I need to get some of everything right. on this plate. And they right. end up with this ridiculous mound of all these things running into each other, crashing right. into each other, things touching that you might not want to have combining. Um, and I just I think that you should put less pressure on yourself to get everything on the first plate. And then maybe you have an entirely different second plate that doesn't replicate anything from the first plate. You know, the worst thing you could ever do on a Thanksgiving when someone says, what can I bring? And you say, you can bring the salad. <laughs> that, 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 that's like the death knell. You know nobody ever is going to touch a salad at Thanksgiving. Right? <laughs> it's like you, you're going to bring that bowl home. You might as well leave the plastic wrap on it because it's just no one's going to go for the salad. Who, who's going to eat salad with all the other stuff? Yeah, it's just, you know, there's a lot of things you could start the meal with if you don't want to go straight to the entree course. But, like, it's supposed to be a celebration built largely around food. And I don't know how excited people get to eat salad. The other way to look at Thanksgiving is it's about the cooking and then it's about the pies. But <laughs> the other stuff, like the meal in between, is kind of a rite of passage to get to the desserts. That's sometimes how I feel about it. Yeah, look, certainly. And I'm a big proponent. Another part of my eating strategy and, and hosting strategy is that between the dinner and the desserts, there should be a long break. That's a good point. I, I don't need eight pies 15 minutes after I finished eating the turkey. Right. All right. So to, to me, you want to finish dinner when it's still light out and you want to go for a walk after the main meal. Watch some TV, watch some football, you go for a walk, you let the kids stretch their legs, and then you yeah. come back to the table in the evening, and then it's time for dessert. And then you you might actually be a tiny bit hungry at that point. You know, back a long time ago before you were born, um, <laughs> we always had the percolator pause because we used to make coffee in a percolator back in the day. So right. you, you finish with the meal, there'd be cleaning up, all the dishes would be done, the kitchen would be spotless, and you put the percolator on, you get the little noise going. <laughs> but 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 I like the idea of sort of cleaning up and relaxing and then 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 you can reset the table with desserts when things are in order. Exactly. You, and then you can enjoy the desserts because yeah. I agree with you that the desserts are a huge part of Thanksgiving and and you want to enjoy them, you want your guests to enjoy them and so you got to give I would say 2 hour break yeah. 
between dinner. And ideally, if you can work in a walk there, it makes a big difference in how you're going to feel. That's a huge part of the eating strategy. So how are you going to cook your turkey this year? I have gotten simpler and simpler as the years have gone on. I I do spatchcock with a dry brine. Me too. Hey. It cooks faster. You get the crispy skin. It's incredibly flavorful. I like to put it on a rack. And then I I put usually like I'll put um, stock and vegetables and a little white wine in the bottom of the pan so that as the turkey juices melt, they end up in that bottom of the pan. And then that liquid becomes like my secret sauce that's going to become gravy. It's going to go into the stuffing. It's going to infuse the entire meal. Excellent answer. Wow, I passed? Yeah, you you and I finally have something in common after all these years. (laughs) So one last question. So is there something about Thanksgiving you've never been able to solve that just bugs you about the meal? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I will admit that I still, you know, it's still at times stressful to cook for a whole bunch of people. I would love to make it through the entire day without at any point feeling like stressed about serving dinner to 16 people. Um, maybe that's too much to ask, but that's that's the one thing I'm missing. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah, I do, actually. I now have reduced my output of choices substantially. Mm. And I, I, I'll do potato, you know, the mashed potatoes, the gravy. I do a stuffing. I do my own uh, soda bread, whole wheat soda bread, which is great. The turkey. And I might do one or con my wife into doing one vegetable. That's it. Done. And I, I've just gotten rid of all those other things I found in strange cookbooks, you know, over the right. years that I, that I earmarked for Thanksgiving. So I, I, I reduced the number of recipes I'm cooking. I think that's smart, and I think that also helps address the initial concern that we set out with, which is, you know, how do you compose the ideal bites? How do you arrange things on your plate? Quality over quantity. And I think that as an eater, when you approach a Thanksgiving buffet, you should not feel obligated to try everything. You know, if you only want the classics, if you only want turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, then then just eat those things. Except when other people bring some of the dishes, then you're doomed. Right. There's the whole sort of like, oh, you have to try right, right, Aunt Velma's, right, right. you know, uh, roast cauliflower. And then, yeah, you got to take a couple bites because you don't want to insult Aunt Velma. Definitely. That's a bad idea. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. Um, so create a demilitarized zone down the center of your plate with mashed potatoes to separate one side from the other. Helpful advice as always. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Chris. You too. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You know, we roast turkeys, we pardon turkeys, we put turkey stickers on our kids' homework, but more recently, turkeys have turned the table. Now we're the ones who are endangered. And we're back at 5.30 now with an angry bird running Let's now look at a story trending in our area. Some people in an Ocean County, New Jersey neighborhood say they're scared to leave their home sometimes because of turkeys all over the place. Now, I am no turkey expert, but this specific turkey seems pretty bold. People in Woburn tell us these wild birds have no fear. And they are all over the place. There are massive amount of turkeys in here. It gets on the back of my husband's truck and follows me. It rode to Chipotle with me one time. They'll peck at your tires and they also won't let you out of your car. It's scary. From New Jersey to California, wild turkeys are taking over. But there's one especially notable bird from Oakland, California, and that would be Gerald, who lived in the Morecambe Rose Garden for most of 2020. 
it seems like nobody really knows where Gerald came from or when. That's Carrie Paul, a reporter who wrote about Gerald for The Guardian in November 2020. Gerald was just kind of always around the garden. He was kind of a mellow guy historically. Um, there's a carpool pickup there where people would wait for the carpool, and Gerald would sometimes be seen waiting in line with the carpoolers. But then things with Gerald took a turn. As the pandemic hit, Gerald started attacking people in the garden Um I know at least a couple people had to go to the hospital for Gerald injuries. Neighbors started theorizing about why Gerald was suddenly aggressive. It was 2020 and people were taking pandemic walks in the garden, so maybe seeing a lot of people stressed him out. Others blamed one person who fed Gerald almost every day. Perhaps he now expected everyone to feed him. It's very unclear what made him snap, but he definitely snapped. Carrie was attacked by Gerald twice, the first time she was able to run out of the garden. And it's funny because I remember thinking like, oh, I made it out of the rose garden, I'm safe. And it's like, turkeys do not recognize borders. So he kind of just kept chasing me down the suburban streets. The second time, Gerald was on the opposite side of the garden when he spotted her about a football field away. Then he kind of locked eyes with me from hundreds of feet away and then just came for me, which is kind of a common story with Gerald. People say that he will find you wherever you are in the garden. While reporting her article, Carrie tracked more than 100 attacks and chases on over 80 individuals. Gerald, unfortunately, had a penchant for young people, like babies in strollers, and then old people. So he was really attacking the weakest among us. So what could the city of Oakland actually do about this bird? Well, they decided to kill him, which outraged many neighbors in the community. People went to the website next door to argue about Gerald. One person wrote, lose the garden, keep the turkeys. Others agreed with the city that it was, in fact, time to kill him. Someone posted, relocate the turkey to the wild or cook him for Thanksgiving. And I've just never seen such passionate fights on next door. And we have, like, real problems in Oakland. But Gerald was kind of the most hot-button issue for a while. It became clear to the city that they couldn't just kill Gerald, so they decided to capture and relocate him instead. After many tried to get him, the city called in Rebecca Dimitrik. She's the director of Wildlife Emergency Services, a private volunteer group based in California's Central Coast. So, yeah, my world involves going out and helping people resolve their wildlife problems and also helping to capture animals that are in difficult situations like Gerald was. Rebecca and her husband, Dwayne, made a plan to capture Gerald with a special gadget, a net gun. So we go up to this platform and Dwayne goes to fire and it's out of air. Dwayne then went to go get another cartridge, which left Rebecca alone with Gerald. I wasn't dressed in any uniform, too. That was another... I was dressed like a little old lady. And so I kind of hunched over a little bit and turned a little bit away from him like I was scared. And I noticed his his head perk up like, oh, I can take you. And really, it was more my body language of being kind of hunched over and weak that I think got him close enough to me. Rebecca and Gerald got closer and closer. She went in for the scruff of his neck. I grabbed him. I just... Grabbed him by the neck, and you know what? He he just went limp. Like, oh, me? I didn't do anything wrong. What? No, it wasn't me. <laughs> you know? It was just funny. It cracked me up that he 
was so Mr. Macho coming after me. And then the second my hand was on him, he knew he, he'd been had. Finally, Gerald was captured and relocated to Berkeley. But then a week later, he was spotted at a playground. He was captured again and brought to a third location. So maybe that's where he is today, but Rebecca doesn't buy it. She thinks that when everyone stopped paying attention, they finally killed Gerald. You know, I'm going to probably do a FOIA, and, and I should. I should. This is inspiring me to do a you know, public information request of them and, and see if I can find out what really happened. Gerald's whereabouts are unknown, but his reign of terror is over. Now it's time for the story of another turkey. You might remember last year's Thanksgiving special. We got a call from Amy Proctor, whose son Simon would not let her cook a turkey for Thanksgiving. My 10-year-old, he has made a very strong friendship with, believe it or not, an actual turkey. This year, we followed up with Amy and Simon to find out more about his friend. At the animal sanctuary, there were a ton of animals, but the one that really stood out to me was this turkey. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is the coolest turkey ever. Simon was curious how he ended up there. I mean, the reason he was there was because he got kicked off of a different farm because he chased everybody around, but that's just because he's like really friendly. And maybe that's how it all started for Gerald, too. Maybe he was friendly and just very misunderstood. We shared Gerald's story with Simon and asked what he thought about all the trouble Gerald got into for chasing people around. If a turkey's chasing you around, I think first you could walk away or something, but I think you should come back and just, like, get to know it. And it'll come up to you and you'll just be like, oh, hi, turkey, how's it going? Thanks to Simon Proctor and his mom, Amy, in Vermont, and thanks to Carrie Paul for her reporting in The Guardian. Carrie's article is called, All We Could Do Was Run, The Strange Story of Gerald the Turkey Who Terrorized a City. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Claire Patak, Kenji Lopez-Alt, Carla Hall, and more of your favorite chefs and cookbook authors reveal their favorite part of Thanksgiving. That's after the break. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. You know, we get a lot of questions here at Milk Street about making mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving. So I've asked Rose Hadabaugh, Wes Martin, both from our kitchen team, as well as April Dodd from our cooking school, to try to come up with solutions to some of your issues. Let's get them on the line. Hey, Rose, what's going on? Hey, Chris, how are you? This is a confessional. I've stopped using recipes for mashed potatoes, but I love mashed potatoes. So I just sort of bake it up, and they seem pretty good. But you are a more exacting cook than I am. So is there something new here, or has everything been figured out about mashed potatoes? Well, we came up with a really great recipe here to make milk-simmered mashed potatoes in one pot. And that's the new thing, because... I don't know about you, but when I'm doing Thanksgiving, I'm usually cooking 10 pounds of potatoes. I've got boiling water. I've got to like drain into a sink. These are really easy because you actually just boil the milk right with the potatoes and then it retains all of the starch and the creaminess of the potato. And then you just throw in a little bit of butter and you're done. So I'm a little confused. So normally with a few pounds of potatoes, you might use, I don't know, two cups of milk or whatever it is. So to actually cook potatoes in milk, don't you end up throwing away some of the milk or not? No, the milk actually gets absorbed into the potato, so it really retains huh. all of the dairy. That's the nice thing about these. So no, you're not like throwing anything out. You're cooking it all in one pot, and then you're just mashing it up right there. So couldn't be easier. So what, what about melted butter? I mean, I always was taught the first thing you do is pour melted hot butter on the potatoes when you mash them to sort of coat the starch granules. Is that part of this recipe, or is it just milk and potatoes and salt? Well, you're cooking them in the milk, but we do add butter. I mean, everybody oh, loves good. butter and mashed potatoes. So all you have to do is throw in four tablespoons of butter at the end, and you don't have to melt the butter or do anything fancy. 
I really love to make mashed potatoes like this, but I know Wes has another really good hands-off recipe. Hey, Wes, you on the line? Yes, I am. Hi, Chris. Hi. I actually like using the Instant Pot because, you know, you got all those pots going on the stove. You got to make gravy. There's all the timing about Thanksgiving is the biggest pain. And you can use an Instant Pot and put that thing in a closet if you have to. No draining required. Very little water with Yukon Golds that make the best. And I use them peel on, put a little butter in with the cooking water this time, and then mash them up when they're done. So are these peeled whole potatoes? Do you cut the potatoes before you put them in or what? Yeah, we just chunk them up and leave the peel on. Um, I, I don't necessarily like, you know, you have those mousseline potatoes that are more cream than potato. That, there's enough rich food on the table. I like a little bit of hearty, rustic texture in my mashed potatoes. So I leave the peel on and they really break down. It's under pressure when they're cooking. So they're soft and it's not like you're getting a big piece of potato peel in your mouth to chew on, but it's fast and easy and, and really hands off and you can keep them warm while you're making everything else. That, that's what I was going to ask. The, one of the benefits is you can just set the thing to low or warm and walk away. And, you know, I, I assume you might have to add a little bit of milk if it's been sitting for a couple hours, but uh, I like that concept of holding them. For sure. And and I, I, I also like to add a lot of different kinds of flavorings too, because anybody that knows me here knows I'm not a fan of garlic and garlic mashed potatoes have no place on a Thanksgiving table. Yes. Good so for you. I, <laughs> I would rather add some interesting flavors. And I, my favorite of these recipes has Fontina and Asiago and a lot of black pepper in it. So they're rich and creamy. And, and you could hold off on adding that until you're ready to serve. Yeah, one trick I learned years ago was not to put all the liquid in at the beginning if you're going to hold them, right? And then so you let them sit around for a couple hours, reheat, and then you add the balance of the liquid at that time, the milk. And um, that way you don't end up over adding liquid. It's the same amount. It's just most of it to start with and about a 20% later on. And that seems to refresh them pretty well. And one of the things I've also done too, and, and this is sort of the same concept with that instant pot, is I'll make my mashed potatoes ahead, put them in a big bowl, set them over a pot of very warm water and tightly cover the bowl. So they're staying warm, but they're not losing moisture. If you put them in a pot and keep them warm, of course, you're going to have to add things to that are going to start to crust onto the bottom of the pot. But that's another way to do it. But then you've got a huge bowl and another burner used up while you're trying to make carrots and gravy. So, April, are you there? Yeah. Hi, Chris. You want to top Rose and Wes, come up with something even better? <laughs> well, it's interesting you say it that way because the recipe that I'm suggesting here is really less about the mashed potatoes themselves and more about kind of a final treatment that you give them. So you could actually make either Wes's or Rose's mashed potatoes and then finish them with this technique called a tarka, which is an Indian cooking technique where you take a fat. In this case, I like to use butter because it's Thanksgiving and you bloom spices or you heat chilies or aromatics in it. And it gives you this super flavorful finishing pop and it looks beautiful. And my favorite recipe for Thanksgiving, I like to bloom whole caraway seeds and mustard seeds in butter and then you drizzle it over your mashed potatoes and it just mm. looks and tastes fantastic. Yeah, I remember when I was in Turkey a year or two ago, they did also use that in Aleppo infused butter over the top, but then they added cheese and threw the whole thing in an oven and it really looks great and tastes great. So a lot of people talk about low fat this and low fat that. I assume at Thanksgiving, we're not having this discussion or are we? 
No, we're not. Not at my house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. You know, there are ways to add flavor to things without a lot of fat. I mean, I know people who make yogurt mashed potatoes and who are looking for that sort of low fat thing. But, you know, get on the bike on Friday, the day after. Yeah, I- <laughs> I'm with you. I think especially Thanksgiving, put the diet aside, please, and enjoy yourself. So two ways to cook the mashed potatoes and one way to flavor them. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, we can resume the diets at a much later date. Thanks. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Enjoy that meal, fat and all. Happy cooking, everybody. That was Rose Hadabaugh, Wes Martin, and April Dodd from our team here at Milk Street. You can find all of these mashed potato recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time for a slice of pie history. I'm joined by Rossi and Astapulo, who tracked down the origins and true stories behind America's favorite pies. Her book is Sweetland of Liberty. Rossi, welcome to Milk Street. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So let's go back, way back, hundreds of years. My understanding is that the original pie crust was flour and water and was just a container. You didn't actually eat it. Is that right? Yes. It was mainly like an inedible vessel for the fillings inside. And, you know, I think it starts to evolve in England. There um, is one old cookbook that had, I believe, a dozen different types of paste, as they called it, which was another word for pastry crust. But as American pie culture has evolved from influence from England and France, it has consolidated into this flaky pastry, nine-inch round in a pie dish version that we think of now, which is part of what makes American pie uh, so unique. So pumpkins were really the fruit, the most common fruit, right, early on. Were these early pumpkin pies more savory and not really custard pies? Yeah, I mean, if you look at when colonists started to arrive in North America, you know, apples aren't here, but pumpkin was. And of course, it's a staple of indigenous diets and is adopted in many ways by European and British settlers. And it was commonly prepared both ways, I would say, in both sweet and savory applications. But as things like spices and sugar become more available throughout the North American diet, it starts to get incorporated. Unfortunately, those very early iterations of colonial pumpkin pie. We don't necessarily have a lot of recipes for them until we get into Amelia Simmons' American cookery towards the end of the 1700s. And as pumpkin pie evolves into kind of the Thanksgiving iteration that we think of, that was probably the 1800s and uh, 1900s. Let's talk about pecan pie. So there was commercial pecan production mid-19th century. But your point is that Carol corn syrup recipe came about, I think, in the 1930s. And that's really what made this recipe take off? Yeah. I mean, if you think about pecan pie, it has been around since the 1800s. It's something that was really a regional dish in many ways. And I think as the whole of the American food system gets more industrialized and commercialized, Caro corn syrup seizes on pecan pie and then starts printing it on his bottles and starts making that a vessel for caracorn syrups use in American households. So you can see that many pecan pie recipes that start to be published in like community cookbooks in the 30s and 40s, they literally are referencing caracorn syrup as the primary ingredient or calling it caro pecan pie. And so this brand and this recipe that has been around for decades already 
become entwined because of advertising and corporate sponsorship. Uh, Derby Pie, I didn't know this. First of all, tell everybody what it is, but there's only one company that's allowed to use that name, right? I just ordered one, by the way, just to taste it. But what is Derby Pie? So Derby Pie is a type of pie from Kentucky, if you couldn't guess based on the name. Uh, It's made with either pecans or walnuts, bourbon and chocolate. And I actually, I just ordered one here in Los Angeles too. And I was quite surprised to see it on the menu because as you mentioned, there is one company called Kern's Kitchen that has a federal trademark on the term Derby Pie. And yeah, they've literally sued people for calling a dish Derby Pie on their menu. Um, One establishment started serving a piece of what they said is called, I can't call it Derby Pie Pie, (laughs) (laughs) to try to get around this. Um, You know, the company has sued Bon Appetit after the magazine ran a recipe for Derby Pie in the 80s. So it's been an ongoing battle for the soul of Derby Pie. Chiffon Pie, like Chiffon Cake, actually, it's interesting because both of these stories are almost identical. A guy invents it in the 1920s, which I think was also true of Chiffon Cake. So this guy called Strauss, what was his story and, and what is Chiffon Pie? Yes, Monroe Boston Strauss. Uh, he is the person who claims to have invented chiffon pie, which is made by folding in beaten egg whites and crowned with a topping of whipped cream and is very like light and delicate and airy. But I should also say that he claims to have invented it because there are records of chiffon pie being referenced earlier. Hmm. But I think what's important is that whether or not he actually invented it, he became famous for having invented it. And I think that's the key distinction. And he was, you know, he would give funny quotes, like, you know, talking about how because he ate so much pie, he said, you know, I have a good complexion and marvelous digestion. Um, And he was a showman, Um, not unlike, you know, the movie stars across the way in Hollywood, not far from where he was baking his pies. And he directly drew that line between what he was doing as the self-proclaimed pie king and Hollywood. You know, he has a picture of himself serving Mary Pickford a slice of orange chiffon pie in his cookbook. So yeah, he was a very interesting character in the history of American pie. So the the arc of pies is pretty interesting. I mean, I, I guess in a way you can tell the story of civilization this way. Maybe that's over overstating it. But, you know, 500 years ago, it was a container for food. Then it it was still practical with pumpkin and other things and apples. Then it became fancier. Then it became something that the processed food movement sort of got involved with. And where is it today? I don't think people make pies at home very much anymore. Is this lost in our past now, pie making? Is it coming back? I mean, it's been many things. What, What is it now? It's a good question. I I think it's so, pardon the pun, but baked into American culture and American cuisine as a whole that, you know, hopefully I don't think it'll ever be fully eradicated from our baking. So I think that pie will continue to endure um, and, you know, use that malleability and that versatility to express different ideas and, and continue to be creative through the infinite possibilities of pie. So I think it'll always be there, and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Rossi, thank you so much. Uh, Maybe we'll bake a pie together. I certainly hope everybody does. Thank you. Thank you. It was great chatting. That was Rossi Anastapulo, author of Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America in 11 Pies. By the way, we've collected some of our favorite Milk Street pie recipes, from apple to pumpkin to maple brown butter. 
and put them on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. For this special episode, we invited our friends to share their favorite parts of Thanksgiving, from food to family traditions to the small, unexpected moments that make the holiday special. And here is what they shared. Hi, everybody. It's Claire Patak from Violet Cakes in London. And I feel like the best part about planning for Thanksgiving is the shopping list. All the like beautiful pumpkins and squashes and quince and apples and I can buy so much because there's always extra people that show up to my Thanksgiving dinner and they're always welcomed. Hi, this is Adam Gopnik. The moment that I relish most of all is actually the night before Thanksgiving because that's the moment when I've got everything, I think, ready to go. And for one brief, completely illusory moment, you think, this is so well organized that it's going to be easy, even though your experience of 40 or so Thanksgivings tells you chaos will descend tomorrow morning. Hey, what's up? I'm Duff from Charm City Cakes in Baltimore, Maryland. I think my favorite moment is really early in the morning going down in the kitchen and, you know, you turn the oven on and it's going to be on all day long having a cup of coffee, making the list of everything I'm going to be doing that day, and then really, like, not sitting down until about 11 o'clock at night. Hi, this is Jonathan Adams. And my favorite part is when you've riced the potatoes and they're drying and steaming. You're so close to having everything ready and everything be perfection that that's the signal to me to call the kids to the table because here we go. This is Chef Lydia Bastianich, and Thanksgiving is the favorite holiday at our house. Especially for me, I am grateful and appreciative of the opportunity that I was given as a young immigrant to become an American. Hi, I'm Pierre Thiam. I'm a chef from Senegal, and I love to cook and give it a twist of West Africa. You know, the turkey becomes a turkey marinated with a tamarind glaze. Oh, this year actually is going to be a piri-piri turkey. It gives it a special West African Thanksgiving. Hello there, this is Andrea Nguyen. So this year I am going to roast chicken because we're not a turkey family. I roast chicken with lots of vegetables and finish it off with a nook jam vinaigrette. It's very Vietnamese. This is Nick Sharma from Los Angeles, California. My favorite Thanksgiving moment is when we sit down to eat dessert. I've tweaked a classic Goan recipe from India called babinka. That includes pumpkin or sweet potatoes. It's still got that delicious custardy texture of a pie filling and there's no crust drama. Hi, this is Carla Halt. Hi, this is Tyler Eakin from Le Cavalier in Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, this is Eliana Masonette. My favorite moment on Thanksgiving Day is making the cornbread dressing, and it's probably because it involves so many hands. My favorite memory of Thanksgiving is my grandmother's cornbread. Every year it was the unsung hero of the dinner table, alongside all the knife cuts she'd done with a dull paring knife and arthritic hands. When I was young, I'd walk the mile to my grandma's house and help her get the turkey out of the oven. It was also just a moment to spend time with her before the chaos of our very large family 
passed into her very small townhouse. Hi, it's Dory Greenspan. I love the holiday. I love everything about it. But I think, well, my favorite part is the end of the meal. The meal's over. But no one leaves the table. We all sit around the table completely relaxed and happy and just having the best conversations. Hey everyone, this is Kenji Lopez-Alt. My favorite part of Thanksgiving actually comes after the meal in the evening when we all sit around and play music together and sing songs. It's a big family sing-along. My dad uh, plays the banjo, I play the guitar, uh, both of my sisters play the fiddle, uh, and in fact my kids now uh, play music as well. Uh, so it's a big family jam session and I really can't think of anything I love doing more than playing music with loved ones. Hi, this is Chef Thomas Keller from the French Laundry here in Yonville, California. And I just wanted to express my love and affection for this wonderful day that's coming up called Thanksgiving. It's a day where it's all about your family and not about the gifts or anything else, not about a single person, but about all of us together celebrating a moment with one another. Hi, this is Jacques Pepin. I want to wish you happy Thanksgiving, the greatest holiday for me. It's all about food. It's all about wine. There is no gift, no date of battle to remember, no saint going up to heaven to remember. It's only eating and drinking together. The best of the holiday. Thanks to everyone who shared their stories with us. You can find even more stories from friends of the show at Milk Street Radio. You know, I don't have a favorite moment for Thanksgiving. I just love Thanksgiving. It's the cornfields double out of my kitchen window. It's the pale moonlight in the woods that illuminates deer trails on frozen leaves. It's the smell of corn silage and wood smoke, of yeast and molasses. It's coming in from the cold or going out into it. It's the memory of a green metal hand pump in the sink along with wet dog and the suet-like aroma of bacon grease. It's waking up pre-dawn in the Kimball house with radiators clanking. It's a place where nobody listens to the news. We make our own. It's a place with three churches, a library, chicken suppers, old home days, and a volunteer fire department. Thanksgiving always reminds me of what we cannot afford to lose, and that's a place called home. That's it for today. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer this holiday season, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to all of our recipes and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and much more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions. Thanks for listening and wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.